Okay, we are in the book of 1 John, and uh, we're in chapter 2, looking at verses 18 through 27. 1 John chapter 2. Our Ventura campus is joining us for the sermon. Let's let them know how much we love them. A little more than that, guys. We are still one church in three locations, Santa Barbara, Carpentry, and Ventura. Pastor Chris Lazo is teaching at the Santa Barbara campus and uh, Ventura, and we are joining together here in 1 John. The title of this message is Antichrists versus Anointing. Oh my goodness, what does that mean? I'm not completely sure, but let's read the text and see if we can figure it out. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, I'm reading and teaching from the New American Standard Bible. Yes, a little shout out for the NASB, come on. Uh, Verse 18, the Apostle John writes and says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. And they went out from us, but they weren't really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth, and because no lie is of the truth. Verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? The Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has a Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is a promise which He has made to us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is holy and sacred. And we ask that it would be such in our minds. It's living and it's active. We ask that it would be such in our hearts. It's powerful, effective, inerrant. We ask that it would have that sort of effect in our lives. And that you would help us to be faithful to the truth of your word. Lord, we know that we are living in days of great opposition the identity and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for so great a salvation that we have. Thank you that you've called us to be your own. And we know that that comes with great challenges, but also with great joy and with great power from the Holy Spirit and with great and wonderful truth revealed in your word. So let these things have an effect in our lives, that we would be tellers of the truth that we would live lives on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit, that our lives would bring great glory to Jesus Christ. Lord, all the lies that we're currently believing, all the lies that are confronting us, all the confusion in culture, we ask that your word would cut through it all. 
we'd have a clear and wonderful picture of Christ and his calling upon our lives. Pray that you please help me to teach and preach in a way that brings you glory and is helpful for the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a lot to talk about here, so we'll get right into it. Remember the context of 1 John. There was some opposition happening to correct doctrine. There were those in the churches that John is writing to that had ceased to believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, then it's awfully difficult to believe that Jesus died in the flesh. And if Jesus didn't die in the flesh, then there is no atonement for sins. And if there is no atonement for sins, you have a mucho grande problema. Si? Tu comprende? Okay, that's all the Spanish I know, and I don't even know if that was right. So John is writing to combat this error. He's writing to deal with wrong ideas about Jesus and wrong behavior that come from those things. We've been getting that. And now he says, after last week telling us not to love the world or the things of the world, now he says in verse 18, children, it is the last hour. It's the last hour. What does that mean? Well, the very end is when Christ returns in power and in glory to renew and restore all things to establish his kingdom in fullness, to judge the world, to set right everything that has gone wrong. That's the end. And John is saying that we're in the final hour before Christ returns to restore all things. Now, John was saying that 2,000 years ago. So if it was the final hour then, what is it, the final seconds now? The reason that he says we live in the final hour is because for a long time, God had caused his people to expect this day when the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom and right everything that had gone wrong. We see that longing all throughout the Old Testament. We see the prophets speaking of it continually. We saw that inaugurated in the first coming of Jesus Christ. The kingdom came when Christ came. It has already come. But it is not yet fully here because Christ is coming again to establish the fullness of the kingdom. And we're living in this already not yet period where the kingdom has come, but it's not yet fully here. And as we've been talking about in 1 John, and John is mindful of that all the time, it's somewhat of a strange existence in this already not yet reality. But the reason that John says we're in the final hour is because the major things that had to take place for the kingdom to come have taken place. The incarnation of Christ, the defeat of sin, death and the devil on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension on high. Those are like the biggies. Now the stage is set for Christ to return. And with those things having happened, we are truly in the last hour. And there is some positive evidence of that, and there is some negative evidence of that. And the negative evidence is that there are many antichrists, he says. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But John here is picking up on the idea that he got from Jesus, that we are to live in the tension of expectation. Christians are to live in the tension of expectation. We're to give careful attention to this idea that Jesus gave us of imminence, right? What does imminence mean? If something is imminent, it means it's about to happen, right? Imminent doom we talk about. It's, a, it's about to happen. 
Jesus presented the doctrine of imminence, that his return could happen at any moment. And so we're to be ready for it. And we're to live in this tension of already, not yet. He already came, but he's not yet come again. He's coming again. We live in this world where it seems like so much is going wrong, but we're expecting him to come and set everything right. Jesus gave us this picture of imminence in Matthew 24. He says, but of that day and hour, his return, no one knows. Okay, of the day and hour, Nobody knows. That's why it was perfectly legitimate and right and doctrinally correct for John to say, we're in the last hour. That's the way Jesus intended it, was for us to live as though we truly believe that it is the last hour. Because of the day, his return, no one knows the day or the hour. Therefore, here's how we live. Be on the alert. Live in a way which is sober, a way which is alert. Live with a sense of expectation. We'll get to next week talking about live with a sense of obedience because Christ is coming again. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this. If the head of the house, here's an illustration, if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. That's an illustration, right? If you know that there's a thief coming at 2 a.m., you're up, shotgun in hand, ready to deal with it. Okay, Jesus is not a thief, We don't have to have a shotgun in hand. His illustration is, even though this world looks like darkness, like nighttime, and like much is being robbed from us, we ought to be on the alert. For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. The doctrine of imminence. The Lord could return at any time. Positive Uh, uh, signs of that. We read about those in Matthew 24, so on and so forth, and negative ones. But we live in this tension of the last hour. The tension has to do with the timing, could happen at any moment, but the tension also has to do with the tenor of the age. The tension has to do with timing and with tenor. Remember in chapter 2, verse 8, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, when John said, the darkness is passing away. Okay, the idea there is the darkness is presently passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, when he says true light, who is he referring to? Jesus. Can I get a little more? A little more response. When John says true light, who is he referring to? Okay, nobody else is a true light. Wasn't a trick question, easy one. The darkness is already passing away. The true light is already shining. Okay, John is always aware of this tension of the already not yet reality of the kingdom. The light is already shining. Christ already came. The darkness is passing away. It's not yet fully gone. When Jesus comes again, it will be fully gone, fully dealt with. Everything that has gone wrong will come untrue on that day, but it's not yet. True light is already shining. And so the darkness is passing away. It's kind of like dawn. We talked about that last week or the week before. I can't remember, but it's kind of like dawn. And dawn has this tension. The sun might still be behind the horizon in the east, but the effect of that light is seen. And if you face the east, you see the light coming. If you turn and face the other way, you see the darkness going. And that is the way the Christian is supposed to see this world. 
The light has come. It has already dawned, but it is coming to fullness of day. We're to see that, rejoice in that, and walk in the light, John has been telling us. But there's also this tension of the darkness. And the light is coming, and the darkness is going away. Now, in the dawn, things can be unclear. In the dawn, we don't always see as we will in the fullness of day. And there's a day coming when Christ returns, when we will see perfectly, the scriptures say. So there's tension in the dawn between the dark and the light. The light is coming. The dark is getting pushed back. There is some unclarity as there is in this lifetime. There's questions that baffle us and we'll continue to. But sometimes it seems darkest before the dawn. And that is true of the way this world will go. Paul writing to Timothy in his second letter says this, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. A picture of the last days. Scripture tells us that the dawn is arriving, but sometimes it is darkest before the dawn. So there is, John is referring to this, and there is now behavioral darkness as we're waiting for the Lord to come back. And and we see that. There's all sorts of cultural battles being waged, waged, excuse me, as it pertains to behavioral darkness. But there won't only be behavioral darkness in the last days. There will be doctrinal darkness in the last days, in our days. There will be behavioral darkness and doctrinal darkness or deception in the last days. Jesus said this, again, Matthew 24. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? They were speaking of the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, okay? The first thing he wanted them to know about the end is make sure that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the Savior. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. There'll be many, he says, who are like that. And will mislead many. Many false prophets. And that's what John is dealing with in the book of 1 John. False prophets. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, many people's love will grow cold. So the last days will be characterized by deception. And again, the last days began, the clock started ticking when Jesus ascended, right? The incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, bam, last days. And so John sees deception in the churches that he's writing to, and he sees lawlessness that is a result of bad doctrine, wrong beliefs about Jesus, bringing wrong behavior, and he says, rightly so, as Christ would have attended, intended, this is the last hour. What Jesus talked about, we're seeing happening in our church right now. 
Paul wrote to Timothy and said this in consonance with what Jesus said. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. And that's what was happening in these churches and that's what's happening in the world today. There is true doctrine and there is false doctrine. There is doctrine from God as found in the word of God and there are doctrines of demons. And it always hinges on the identity, person, and work of Jesus Christ. And remember, they were denying the incarnation, so they were denying the atonement. So they had to deny culpability for sin. You got wrong ideas about Jesus, you're gonna get life wrong. And you're certainly gonna get salvation wrong. That's what he's dealing with. That's what he's talking about in verse 18. So he says again in verse 18, children, it's already the last hour. I told you why he believes that and rightly so. And just as you heard the Antichrist is coming, Now, there's a whole nother sermon that we're not going to do this morning. But Daniel chapter 9, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, and the book of Revelation all talk about this future coming world leader, Antichrist, we'll think of it capital A Antichrist, right? Who's going to deceive the nations, who is opposed to Jesus Christ, who will come in the name of peace and unity, but endeavor to lead the world away from Christ. And when Christ comes again, he will deal with him. But the world is moving toward this culpability of being deceived by an antichrist. Anti here meaning adversary or opponent of, pseudo-christos in the Greek, an opponent of Christ. There will be an ultimate one. He says, you've heard about that. You guys know Daniel 9, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, book of Revelation. And then he says, but there are also many antichrists currently. We'll think of these as lowercase a antichrist. There's the big one that's coming, but there's already a foretaste of that. There's already an experience of that opposition to Christ. He says, because we're seeing many antichrists or adversaries of Jesus, opponents of the true identity to Jesus. He says, from this, we know that it is the last hour. Because many are endeavoring to malign who Christ is and what he's done according to the scriptures. And this is, as it was then, this is for us now, one of the evidences that the darkness is passing away. Okay, one of the evidences that the darkness is passing away and the light has come is that Jesus has become the main target. Think about it. Okay, the light has come. The darkness is getting pushed back. Who's the light? Jesus. Oh, that's so much better, church. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus is the light. The darkness is getting pushed back. So the darkness has made the light, Jesus, its main target. Think about it. Concerning Jesus, there are more perversions of his identity than anyone else in the history of the world. There's nobody in past history or in the world currently, about whose identity there is so much quarreling, so much confusion, so many opposing ideas. Every philosophy has its idea about Jesus. 
Every religion has its idea about Jesus. Every cult has its idea about Jesus. Every agnostic, every atheist, every popular source, movies, they all have these different ideas about Jesus. Why about Jesus? There's not that much disagreement about Buddha. There's not so much about Muhammad. There's not all these questions about Confucius. But about Jesus, there are so many perversions of his identity. Why is that? Because he is the light that is pushing back the darkness. So he has become the main target. John is saying, by this we know that we are in the last hour. There are not only many perversions of his identity, there are many prohibitions of his name. Think about that. You can say whatever you want to say in the workplace and on school campuses, but you better not say Jesus in any positive way. I mean, is that not astounding? You can say whatever you want to say. You can talk about foul, lewd things. You can exalt them. You can exalt perversion. You can parade perversion. You can declare whole days for it. You can talk about Muhammad all you want. But the moment you mention Jesus, there's opposition. It's prohibited. Isn't that interesting? We're living in the last days. Jesus has become the main target. There are not only many perversions of his identity and prohibitions of his name, but persecutions of his people. Did you know that this year 100,000 Christians will be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ? Did you know that every year for the last 100 years, 100,000 Christians have been killed for their faith in Jesus Christ? You say, I didn't know that. Why don't I know that? Because you watch the news. The news doesn't report it. It's a common occurrence. Every day, people are dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. Every once in a while, Fox News, God bless them, will pick up a little story. Tell me, in what other name are people being slaughtered every year in the hundreds of thousands? In what other name? No other name. No other name. There is no other name that if you say, I believe in and follow this person, your life is threatened in places like Saudi Arabia, in places like Indonesia, in places like Eritrea, in places like China. There's no other name. What other name has become a cuss word? Nobody hits their hand with a hammer and says, oh, Buddha. Nobody hits their, stubs their toes on a rock and says, oh, Muhammad. Only the name of Jesus has become a cuss word. Why is that? Because it is the name above all names. Because it is the only name given under heaven by which men and women can be saved. Because he is the true light who has come and is coming again, and who is pushing back the darkness. Now you can do that. 
So we are living in tension. We are living in the tension of the dawn. And in that tension, when the darkness is getting pushed back, there is going to be conflict and confusion. Dark and light do not coexist. There cannot be light and dark in the same space. Therefore, as the light is coming, the darkness is being pushed back. But it is also endeavoring to rally. And what the rallying of the darkness creates is gray space, right? Between the light and the dark, there is gray. And that's what our culture wants to push. Let's make everything gray. Let's make everything relative. Let's make everything a matter of perspective. But the truth about the dawn is that the gray cannot remain. It's not like June gloom, (laughs) which much to our dismay has come and is here. It's not like June gloom. It can't hang around for that long. The light has come. Culture wants things to be gray, but the day is dawning. And all of it hinges, John is saying, on the right understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You get that wrong, you miss the light altogether. And so John is drawing some hard distinctions here. Once again, so he says in verse 19, they, right, those who had the wrong idea about Jesus, went out from us. Okay, these are people that were leaving their churches because of the doctrinal disagreement. But they weren't really of us. He's trying to bring some truth that comforts them now because they're kind of reeling. They had known these people for a long time and all of a sudden these people are saying, no, Jesus is not the Messiah in the way that you think. He didn't come in the flesh. He didn't really die on the cross. And now they're leaving and these guys are going, what's, what's happening? They went out from us, but they weren't really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. John is saying in verse 19, that there are those who are in and those who are out. There really are. It depends upon what you do with Jesus. That is true now, and that will be true on the great day of judgment. No one will ask you how much money you gave or how much money you had or how many good things you did. Or did you help that old lady across the street? That won't be the question. The singular question will be, what did you do with Jesus? There will be those who are in and those who are out on the day of judgment. It will be a judgment according to what we've done with Christ. Either we confess Christ and so we took the judgment for our sins on the cross, or we deny Christ and so we will now be judged for our sins for all of eternity. There will be those who are in and out, and there were in this church those who were in and out, and there are now those who are in and out, and it depends on your belief of Jesus Christ. Jesus pressed this when he said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? He said that in the backdrop of many competing beliefs and philosophies at Caesarea Philippi, where there was this cliff with all these niches in it, with all these false gods, and he stood in front of it and said, who do you say that I am? Because there's competing ideologies, there's competing religions, 
And there's lots of rumors about me. His day was just like our day. They responded and said, some, well, some say you're the prophet, and some say you're Jeremiah, and some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. But then Peter, John's buddy, spoke up and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right, Peter. Who do you say that I am? It all hinges on the identity of Jesus Christ, which defines the dark and the light. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. They went out as heretics on their own volition, but there was divine purpose in their going, that it might be shown, it says in the last part of verse 19, that it might be shown that they were not really of us. And so there came, according to primary doctrine, not secondary or tertiary issues, primary doctrine, the identity of Jesus Christ, there came a sharp distinction. John says there's now an us and a them. And it depends on the identity of Jesus Christ. And it's the same in our culture. There are Jehovah's Witnesses and there are Christians. There are Mormons and there are Christians. There's a church of Christian science and there are true Christians. There's a unity of church, the the unity church, excuse me, Unitarian church, and there is the true church. It's the same in our day. That's what he's getting at in verse 22 and 23. We'll skip there for a moment. He says explicitly, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, lowercase, lowercase a, this is the Antichrist. This is the opposition to Jesus Christ, the one who denies that he's the Messiah, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. You get Jesus wrong, you get God wrong. You get God wrong, you get eternity wrong. You get eternity wrong, you get life wrong. It's no small thing. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Calls him out. Says, you know what? They were lying about the identity of Jesus Christ. And there are many in our world today that are doing the same. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And they went out from us. He's saying, listen, their counterfeit beliefs were revealed. Revealed when they left. In this sharp distinction, as painful as it is, their counterfeit beliefs were revealed. Now think about the nature of a counterfeit. There's a counterfeit it's because there's something real. I don't see anybody walking around today on the streets claiming to be Muhammad. But I meet lots of people claiming to be some sort of Messiah, the Savior. Jesus said there'd be many who come in my name, claim to be the Messiah. A counterfeit means that there's something real. And think about Satan's strategy. Satan comes, Corinthians says, as an angel of light, right? He comes appearing to be of the light, of the dawn, but he's actually of the darkness. And though the darkness is getting pushed back, Satan is always trying to push the darkness on us. And that manifests in gray because dark and light do not, cannot coexist, So as the light is coming and the enemy is pushing back, there's more and more of this gray area. 
And the way that this gray comes and manifests itself is in false beliefs about Jesus Christ, which will lead to false beliefs about morality and behavior, truth and error. The strategy of Satan is not to outright deny that the light has come, does not deny Jesus. The strategy of Satan is to malign Jesus. Well, maybe Jesus is the offspring of Michael the archangel. Well, maybe Jesus is just one of many gods. Well, maybe Jesus is just an enlightened practitioner. Maybe it's the Hindu Jesus. Maybe it's the New Age Jesus. Maybe he wasn't actually God. Maybe it's Unitarian Jesus. All these slight perversions, these counterfeits. And what was happening here is that this was taking place even within the church. And Jesus said this would be the case. Again, Matthew 24. For false Christs, messiahs, and false prophets will arise and will even show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. There's not only going to be deception in the last days from outside the church, but there'll be deception in the church. Jesus said that there would be tares among the wheat. You understand tares and wheat? Jesus said that the enemy would come and plant tares among the wheat. Now, tares were weeds that grew in wheat fields that looked just like wheat. But their roots were invasive, right? And so they would wrap themselves around the root of the wheat. And if you went as the owner of a wheat field or the worker of a wheat field and tried to tear out the tares, there were two problems. Number one, they were difficult to identify. Number two, you would end up pulling out the wheat as well. When they would be identifiable is when it came time for harvest and there was fruit. And so Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. The tares would not produce fruit that was consonant with Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But there would be a lack of fruit. That's what John is saying about the opponents in 1 John. Jesus said, there's coming a day where though there's a lot of gray area right now, there will be clear ins and outs. He said, in the last day, I will send forth my angels to separate the tares from the wheat. So that brings up two important doctrines then, that there'll be deception within the church. And it's this, the idea of the perseverance of the saints is one doctrine that we'll mention briefly, and the other is the nature of the church, that the church is both visible and and invisible. What is the idea of the perseverance of the saints? Again, Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 13 said this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures in their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. Now, here's an important distinction about this doctrine. Not because salvation is the reward for endurance. That can't be right, right? Not because salvation is a reward for endurance, but because endurance is a hallmark of salvation. Those who are truly saved will be saved and they will maintain their faith in Jesus Christ. They will persevere. There will come a day where the ins and outs are clear. It can be ambiguous at times now. There's gray area. There's controversies and disputes about the identity of Jesus Christ, even within the church. But those who are truly in Christ will persevere and so be shown to be in Christ. 
Again, Jesus, or John said, if the false teachers had been of us, they would have remained with us. They never believed correctly in the first place. Here's an old saying that's apropos. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. <laughs> Here it is said in a different way, Hebrews chapter 3. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 3, thank you. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Again, not because salvation is a reward for endurance, but because endurance is a hallmark of salvation. Those who are saved will be shown to be saved. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The second doctrine that comes up in this text is the nature of the church. That we have, and I'm speaking about the church with uppercase C. I should have written that there. It's my mistake. I'm talking about uppercase C, the church universal, the body of Christ in the world. Okay, we understand this as being both visible and invisible. Are you guys bored? No. Okay, good. Visible and invisible. So the church is supposed to be visibly manifest, right? Jesus wants people to look at the church and say, wow, that's, that's, that's the church of Jesus Christ. And he said there'd be lots of ways that they identify that. One would be our love for one another, right? One would be fruit. Part of that is baptism, Right? Part of that is that we're a worshiping community and a witnessing community and an obeying community. But Jesus taught, again, not all those who appear to, appear to be members of the church are truly members of Christ. Not all those who appear to be members of the church, even baptized, are truly members of Christ. Second Timothy says this. They have left the path of truth, But God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. Now here we see both the church visible and invisible. The church visible is all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. There should be something in our lives that smells like Jesus. And it should come from obedience People should be able to look at the life of the Christian and say, they're different. They follow Jesus. They live differently in this world. They have different values and a different set of morals and they think differently and they behave differently. And so people can look and say they are visibly the church. All who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. But the invisible part of the church is that the Lord knows those who are his. There will be even those who have great behavior who have not truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. Think about Mormons. The world knows that Mormons are some of the most moral people on earth, but they've got a wrong Jesus. The Lord knows those who are truly his. Jesus said it this way, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 7 very quickly. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, starting in verse 13. Jesus says in Matthew seven thirteen, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Speaking of him, the identity and work of Christ. Verse 15 then. Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing. Okay? They look like sheep, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is what 1 John has been talking about. Many will say to me on that day, Remember now, up in verse 13, he said, many are on the wide path that leads to destruction, few are on the narrow path. And now he says in verse 22, many will say to me on that day, this day where the ins and outs will become clear, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Wait, hold on right there. Boy, look at the gray area. That, that's difficult. There's going to be people in the church who look like the church, who are doing the stuff that is of the church. And yet, verse 23, Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It was the broad way. It was the gray area. It was the wrong identity of Jesus Christ. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And the strange thing about living in the dawn, in the tension of darkness and light, is that there's going to be gray area for a while. And it's going to be so gray that things are going to be unclear sometimes. Performing miracles, casting out demons, prophesying in his name. Gosh, they look like the church. They act like the church. They must be like the church. Depart from me. I never knew you. And it will hinge on only one thing. The true identity of Jesus Christ. And his finished work upon the cross. That's it. So he goes on to say, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who has built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand, the gray area. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Church visible and invisible. Ins and outs. Gray area. Tares and wheat. Something worth contending for in this lifetime, in this church, in this community is the true identity of Jesus Christ. It will be maligned in the media. It will be maligned in popular culture. The name of Jesus has become enemy number one. If you will spend your life on anything, spend your life proclaiming and demonstrating who Christ truly is. Amen? Amen. Not done yet. Back to 1 John. (laughs) Totally felt like an ending, huh? 
You totally wish it was, as do I slightly. But we're almost finished. 1 John chapter 2. Now he contrasts us with them. And this is very quick. He says in verses 20 and 21. We already looked at 22 and 23, 18 and 19. He says in 20 and 21. But you, okay, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know, speaking of the truth. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, because no lie is of the truth. New Living Translation says it this way. But you're not like that. Those were the wrong idea of Jesus, and so wrong behavior. For the Holy One has given you His Spirit, and all of you know the truth. So I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. We know who Jesus is. Why? Because it's been revealed in the Word of God and confirmed by the Spirit of God. When he says you have an anointing from God, he's talking about the Holy Spirit being given to the church. That's how we know truth from error. What did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? A lot, but look what he said in John 14. I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper, right? Parakletos, that he will be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and, you, and will be in you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus said this also in John 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, the true identity and work of Jesus. And then Jesus said in John 16, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Any doctrine, any belief, any philosophy that doesn't glorify Jesus Christ as a name above all names is a doctrine of demons. Is a false doctrine, is a lie about Jesus Christ. If there's any figure and any framework that is more central than Jesus, then that is a demonic, deceptive, worldly, wrong framework. Jesus Christ is a name above all names. And Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit into the world to convict the world of righteousness, sin, and judgment, and he will glorify me and lead you into truth of the fact that my name is above all names. And then he says in verse 27, see how we already skipped to the end? Verse 27, and as for you, the anointing which you receive from him, the Holy Spirit which you received, abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. You have the Holy Spirit who is a teacher of truth that teaches you all things. You have no need for anyone to teach you. Now, he's not saying that there aren't teachers, right? There's teachers in the church. There's teachers in our lives. Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 says, God has appointed teachers. And we also have closed canon, the full word of God, which these churches didn't yet have. 
So the teachings of Jesus as handed down were confirmed by the person of the Holy Spirit as heard by believers. But now we have teachers appointed in the church, even as they did then, and the fullness of Scripture. So the Holy Spirit does teach you. He does bring to remembrance all that Jesus said. He does guide you. He does guide us as a church. He does speak to us, but his vocabulary is the Bible. And if you tell me that the Holy Spirit is saying something about Jesus that is outside of Scripture, then I'm telling you you're wrong. Because the Holy Spirit is a teacher of all truth. And John would not contradict himself. John recorded Jesus saying in John 17, 17, that God's word is truth. Sanctify them in truth and thy word is truth. John recorded Jesus in the Gospel of John is saying that he himself is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John recorded Jesus as saying about the Holy Spirit that he is the spirit of truth. So... The work of the Holy Spirit, the identity of Jesus Christ, and the Word of God will always align in our lives. Or it's false. That's what was going on here. And he says, rejoice. You have the Holy Spirit teaching you, leading you to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. But be mindful. Don't get caught up in the gray area. There is a profound juxtaposition. There is an us and a them. They are antichrists, lowercase a. We have an anointing from Christ. They went out from us, misunderstanding Christ. We abide in Christ. They were false teachers. We have the Holy Spirit as our teacher. They denied that Jesus is the Messiah. We know the truth about Jesus. Antichrist versus anointing. The spirit of this age is anti, opposed to, adversarial to Christ. But our teacher is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Word of God. So then he says in verse 24, as for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he himself has made to us eternal life. Let the truth of Jesus Christ abide in you. And you abide in Jesus. What does it mean to abide? To make your abode. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Abode is a noun, abide is a verb. Abide in that which you've heard. Let the truth about Jesus Christ fill your hearts, fill your minds. That means you might have to read your Bible more than you watch movies. Let the word of Christ fill your hearts and your minds. Abide in you. And then you abide in Christ. We're not people of the gray area. We're children of the light. Live and walk in the light, even as he is light. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much that you are the light that has come and is coming. And that we are children of the kingdom of light. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've given us who leads us in truth and righteousness for your namesake, who exalts Christ in our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that, that the true identity and work of Jesus Christ would fill our hearts and minds, that we'd set our minds on the things above where Christ is. 
and the truth about Jesus in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells would dwell in our hearts and fill our lives and that our lives would start to look, smell, feel, and reflect Jesus into this world. Our world wants it to be gray or dark. We want to shine the light. Help us to do that and be faithful with that. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.